If you will now, I'll ask that you take out a Bible with me, and we'll once again go to the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 4. Micah, chapter 4 today. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, you can take one of those blue Bibles on the pew in front of you. I believe it is 925, page 925 on those, uh, and you'll find Micah, chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1 here in just a moment, we'll cover the first five verses of this chapter today. Now today we come to words of hope in the midst of a book that thus far has been full of words of judgment. Essentially, we've had four weeks in Micah of sermons on sin and judgment, and now comes the turn, if you will. Now it's, it's not as though we have seen the last of the words of judgment or the last of the words about sin in this wonderful book. Uh, But, whereas the first three chapters of the book of Micah were characterized by God speaking against his people and against their sin, the last four chapters in this book are characterized by God giving them hope for the future and thereby giving us hope as well. And so let's read our text. Micah chapter 4, we're only going to cover the first five verses today. This is God's word through the prophet Micah, where it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mountain of the Lord of the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Today I've divided this passage up into three things that I want us to walk away with, three kind of themes that I want us to focus on and go home with, Uh, and just so happens they all start with the letter P. I am not one for alliteration as much as some other preachers, but this one kind of just like fell out of the text that way, and so I said, okay, we're going to go with it. We're going to see from our text today the promise of heaven, the pursuit of God, and the path to it all. Promise, pursuit, and path. The promise of heaven, the pursuit of God, and then the path to it all. Let's start with the promise of heaven. Notice once again, if you will, look one more time in our text at verse 1, where right at the beginning it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, the latter days there is a phrase that should tip us off if we're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, that this is not just a prophecy for the Israelites at that time in their future. But this is a prophecy for all of our futures. This is a prophecy for the end times, for when God will come once again, Jesus will return, and God will end the world as we know it, time as we know it, and eternity will begin. 
That phrase latter days will show up over and over again in books like Micah and other books of the Old Testament. And when you see it, that's what it's talking about. Because remember, this book Micah comes from 3,000 years ago. It's God's word through this prophet Micah about 3,000 years ago to the Israelites who were living then. But you have to understand this this prophecy right here in verses 1 through 5, it came to those people, but it was never fulfilled in their lifetimes. And it has never since been fulfilled because this is one of those prophecies that has not happened yet. This is one of those prophecies in the Bible that will not come to pass until the end of all things. In fact, the Old Testament is full of prophecies like this. Prophecies where the Jews who would be reading it, expected it to be fulfilled in their lifetimes. The Jews would have been reading this in the days after Micah, even in the days of the New Testament. Jews would have been reading this and thought, the Lord is going to restore our prominence. The Lord is going to restore us as a nation. Those Jews would have been thinking back to King David and the prominence of Israel among the world at that time. Israel was on top of the world when David was king, and when Solomon was king at the beginning of his reign. Jerusalem was the center of the earth, it seemed like. The temple was the greatest thing in existence. God's presence dwelled right here, and the Israelite people were the greatest of all peoples. And so the Israelites, the Jews, would have been reading this thinking, God's going to restore our physical city. God's going to restore our physical nation. But just like many of the Old Testament prophecies like this, it was not a physical, it was not a physical prophecy, it was a spiritual one. It was one that would be fulfilled later in a spiritual, not a physical way. We see this all over the Bible, how the things that you would expect to be physical are not, they are instead spiritual. For instance, when Jesus was speaking to Pilate, right before he was sent off to be crucified, Pilate, the Roman governor, says to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says what? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He is a king. He is the king. right? But his kingdom is not of this world. He said, I have have servants in my kingdom, but they are not fighting for me with weapons. Because that's not what kind of kingdom I came to set up. The Israelites in Jesus' day thought that a Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans. And undo Roman oppression on the Jews. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I've come for. I've come for something more important. I've come to deal with sin in the human heart. I've come to deal with something that is going to last far longer than this empire of Rome. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. God is not working to set up a physical kingdom. He's setting up a spiritual one. One that cannot be touched. And one that cannot be shaken. And this is why, as Christians... We are not hoping that the United States becomes a Christian nation. The United States is not our hope. This is why we don't put our hope in politics or military strength. We are looking forward to a kingdom that is not of this world. We are in a kingdom, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ today, we are in a kingdom that is much deeper than our identity as Americans. Right? We share identity in this kingdom as brothers and sisters with people from all nations, all across the world. Think about what's going on right now on Sunday morning all across the world, in all kinds of different languages, in all kinds of different cultures. 
There's all kinds of people who aren't dressed like this and they aren't singing songs like we are, but we're worshiping Jesus together as brothers and sisters because there's something deeper than our identity as citizens of a political country in this world because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We are looking forward, as it says in the book of Hebrews, looking forward to a city with spiritual foundations whose designer and builder is God himself. And so this right here is a prophecy of heaven. It's what we're reading today, a prophecy of what it's going to be like in heaven for those who are in Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4 here. Specifically in the middle of verse 3, where it says something interesting. It says, Then at that day they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, one day, it has not come yet, but one day, weapons will no longer make sense. Swords and spears will be refashioned as gardening tools because weapons will make sense anymore. Protection will not make sense anymore. There's this movie I watch every now and then called The Assassination of Jesse James. You might have seen this one. Uh, Brad Pitt plays Jesse James. Um, and toward the beginning of the movie, they've just robbed a bank, Brad Pitt and his, his other, Jesse James really, and, and his, his brother and their gang, the James gang, they've just robbed a, a, a train. And they're, they're in their hideout, kind of rehashing what went on. And Jesse James is standing in the door of, of this little barn, and he's listening to his older brother Frank talk. Now in this movie, Jesse James doesn't look up to anybody. Everybody looks up to him, except for his older brother Frank. Right? Jesse James is this larger-than-life figure that everyone feels a little bit uncomfortable around because of how, how big of a deal he is. But the only person he looks up to is his older brother Frank. And he's listening to his older brother Frank talk right after this robbery. And Frank essentially says, I'm done. After this, I'm going to hang it up. I hang my guns up. There's no, no more riding as an outlaw for me. I'm, I'm just going to go live a normal life. And somebody asks, what are you going to do? And he says, I don't know, maybe sell shoes or something, but I'm going to hang this up and I'm going to trade it in for, for just a normal, honest, peaceful life. I don't want to be an outlaw anymore. Now, the whole time he's talking, the camera's actually on Brad Pitt's face, Jesse James, and it's, it's panning in slowly. And Jesse James doesn't say a thing during this scene, but you know from his eyes, you know from his eyes that he wishes he could be like that. He wishes he could give it up, but he can't. You know, his identity is too tied up in being a criminal. His, his identity is too tied up in being an outlaw. He wishes he could be like his older brother, but, but he can't. But his older brother, he's going to trade it in. He's, he's seen the light, so to speak. He's done with this. He doesn't want to run away anymore. And brothers and sisters, there will be a day for all of us when weapons no longer make sense. We'll trade them in. There won't be a need for them anymore. Because the Prince of Peace will reign forever. In that day, warriors will become musicians. Army generals will become farmers. We will take all of the wood from our courtrooms and we'll use it to make bonfires for roasting hot dogs. We'll take all of the paper of our insurance policies and we'll use it to wrap presents. We'll take all of our bullets and missiles and barbed wire, and we'll melt them, melt them down, and we'll make swing sets, and seesaws, and monkey bars. There'll be no more passwords, 
No more encryption. No more paper shredders. No more banks. Guns and door locks and jails will all be useless and forgotten. Those won't make sense any longer because there will be no more war. Look at verse 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. No one will make us afraid anymore. Revelation 21 says the new Jerusalem, the holy city that God has promised all of his children for all eternity, the new Jerusalem will have gates. It will be a city with gates, but those gates will never be shut. They'll never be shut. Why? Because there's no evil to keep out. There's no evil to keep out. The promise of heaven is a promise that one day God will do away with sin. There's no more weapons because there's no more sin. There's no more war because there's no more sin. Right? There's no more evil to keep out because there's no more sin. It's all about sin. God will do away with sin once and for all. And this is part of what we long for when we pray for Jesus to return. Right? We pray for Jesus to return. We pray that God would send him quickly because we see the suffering in this world. We see the pain. We see the sorrow. We feel it ourselves. We want to escape that. But the only way it will ever end is Jesus. When Jesus comes back, that's when it ends. Until then, it's our job to hold on. But when Jesus comes back, this day will be realized. This prophecy will be realized. There will be no more war anymore. Weapons won't make sense anymore. And it's all because when Jesus comes, he will do away with sin once and for all. Jesus dealt a decisive blow to sin on the cross, right? At the cross, when Jesus died for sins, he paid for sins with his death. There was a decisive blow dealt to sin. But as you and I know, sin's still alive. Sin's still around. We still struggle with sin. It will not be taken care of fully until Jesus returns. And so we pray that God would send that day quickly. We pray that God would hasten the day when Jesus would return. Until that day, we hang on to our hope from places like Micah chapter 4. But it's not just about the promise of heaven, Micah 4. It's about the pursuit of God because our longing for heaven, for those who are in Christ, we long for heaven, but our longing for heaven is really just a longing for God himself. That's really what it is. At the deepest level, Our longing for heaven is really a longing for God himself. The only people that will make it to heaven are those who are pursuing the one who is over it all. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says something that has always astounded me. He's praying to God. And as he's praying, he says to God, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how Jesus describes eternal life. Is eternal life a place without tears? Yes. Is eternal life a place without sorrow and without pain? Yes. But eternal life, as Jesus describes it right here, is knowing God, which means eternal life starts now. Eternal life can start now. For you, knowing God and knowing Jesus, that's what eternal life is. Because if we could have all of the blessings of heaven, all of of the comfort and peace, all of the loved ones we've ever missed, and all all of the the greatest comforts, the food, the, the entertainment, the recreation, if we could have all of that, but God was not there, it's not worth it. 
It's not worth it if God's not there. We want God. We're after God, right? We want Him. We don't just want His gifts. Look at verse 2 with me in our text. Verse 2. You see this clearly in verse 2. Because it says, On that day many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. But why? For what purpose? It says, That He may teach us His ways. And that may we, we may walk in His paths. Again, we must ask, why are we coming to God? All of us need to ask ourselves, why are we coming to God? Do we want a spiritual butler like we talked about last week? Do we want a spiritual vending machine, so to speak? You put in your coin and out pops a blessing. You pray the right prayer and out pops a blessing. You you do the right religious duties and ceremonial things and out pops your, your blessing. Do you want a spiritual vending machine? You come to God in order to get something else that you really want. Not Him by Himself. You, you want something else. He's a means to an end for you. Is that why we come to God? Look at what it says right here. It says, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. How many people even today make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land because they think there's some kind of mystical blessing that awaits those who touch the right objects or stand in the right place. But God is looking for those who have the heart of this verse. For those who have the heart of this verse. There are those who will never be able to afford a trip over to Israel. There are those who will never even think about that. And they can be closer to God than a person who lives there every day of their life. Why? Because it's about the heart. God wants people who have a heart like this. Those who say, let's go find God so that He can teach us His ways and so we can walk in His paths. Is that why you're here today? Are you eager to learn the ways of God? Are you eager to walk in His paths? Think about the difference from God's perspective between two people who approach him. One comes to him and God says, why have you come? And they answer, because I need money. I I need you to get me out of a jam. I need you to fix a problem in my life. That's why I've come to you, God. And then the second person comes to God and God says, why have you come? And they say, "I, I was hoping you might be able to teach me. I want want to know you. I want to know what you love and I want to know what you hate. I want to be like you. I want to know how to live in your will. Could you perhaps do that for me? Which one honors God more? Which one honors God more the way that we approach him? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 in our text. Look at it one more time with me. It says, For all the peoples... Walk each in the name of its God, but we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, one of the things that we see from this verse is everyone walks in the name of some God. Everyone. Every single person on the earth walks in the name of some God. Even the atheist walks in the name of some functional God. Now, in in that day, in the day of Micah, there were all kinds of idols and deities that people worshipped. False gods that had names and had statues, right? The same is true today. It's just today in America, the gods are not statues with names like Molech or Baal. 
Today in our culture, the gods go by other names. Success, comfort, money, power, popularity, family, sports, recreation, hobbies, or perhaps the most common false god of them all, the god of self, right? Everyone walks in the name of some functional god. Every single person. You can't get away from it. There is something that drives all of us, right? This is the way that God has made the human heart. This is the way that God has made you. Your heart is a worship machine. God has made you like that. Your heart is a worship machine. It will worship something. Or as Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord himself, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Right? That's the way that God made our hearts. So everyone walks in the name of some God, some functional God. But look at what the end of verse 5 says. The end of verse 5 says, But we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah's saying, we're going to take a stand right here. No matter what anyone else does. It's much like Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where after the Israelites have gone through Canaan, they've destroyed so many of these other nations, Joshua says to them, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, All of you make a choice, but no matter what you do, me and my house, we're serving the Lord. We're serving the Lord. Are you willing to take a stand like this for yourself and for your household? That I don't care what everyone around me is doing. We are following the Lord. Even if it means everyone makes fun of us. Even if it means people say we're on the wrong side of history. Even if it means we don't get to enjoy all the forms of entertainment everyone else enjoys. Even if it means some of my friends or my family members start to distance themselves from me. We are following the Lord. Think about Jesus. Jesus during his life, when his ministry started, it's like he set his face toward that day in Jerusalem when he would be crucified. And nothing was going to distract him from that. No one would distract him from that. Peter says, you're not going to go get killed. We're not going to let it happen. And Jesus tells Peter, one of his closest friends, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of Satan. You do not have in mind the things of the Lord. Nothing's going to distract him. He set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. I'm going to go die. For the sins of my people. In the same way, we have to set our face resolutely toward God. And we can't let anything or anyone keep us from Him. No matter what everyone else is doing, we are going to follow the Lord. Everyone walks in the name of His own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. The one true God. The God of the Bible. The God who became a man in Jesus Christ and died for his people. We're going to walk in his name. The God that we call Jesus. We're going to walk in his name. No matter what everybody else is doing, are you ready to take a stand like that for you and for your household? Which leads us right into what I said was that third P, the path to it all. 
We've got the promise of heaven, the pursuit of God, and the path to it all. This text is a picture of heaven. It's a picture of eternity with God. And it's beautiful and wonderful to think about. But the Bible is very clear that every human being will not experience this. This is not a promise that is given to every single human being saying that no matter who you are and what you do, everyone will experience this. No. Only those who are in Christ will experience this. Only those who are in Jesus Christ will experience this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus himself said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Eternal life is only granted to those who come to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said of him, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It must be through Jesus. If you don't come to God through Jesus, you don't get God. God has said, this is my beloved son. You either come to me through him or you don't come to me at all. If you reject my son that I sent to you, you reject me. You can't have the father without the son. You can't have God without Jesus Christ. Christ. And so we implore you, we we plead with you, turn to Jesus before that day when he comes. Because on that day when Jesus comes and he rids the world of sin, he will also destroy God's enemies. And it will be the last chance that anyone has. No one, there will be no more chances on the day when Jesus returns. When, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, when the trumpet blows, and that the shout comes, and we see Jesus coming from the clouds, there will be no more chances. Everyone's eternal fate at that moment is sealed forever. So come to Christ. To come to Christ, all you have to do is meet God's conditions to receive this free gift. God tells us in His Word, if you want to come to Jesus, if you want to become a Christian, you have to put your trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Right? Give Him your life. So you have to put your faith in Jesus. You have to repent of your sins. Repenting just means I'm going to turn away from the life I've been living by myself. I've been living for myself, for my own pleasure, for my own sinful pleasure. I want to turn away from that. I don't want that anymore. I'm forsaking it. I'm going to turn around and turn to Christ. Faith, repentance, and then confess. You have to confess Jesus as Lord before others. You have to confess Him as Lord before other people. You have to be open and honest about it. I'm following Jesus. I'm I'm taking my place with Jesus no matter what that means for for my life, for those around me, my friends, my family. I'm going to follow him. And then you have to be baptized into his name. Acts 2.38 says that when we are baptized, we are baptized for the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you come to Christ like that, God grants you eternal life. He grants you the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' death will count as payment for your sins. 
That's the promise. Jesus' death can count as payment for your sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering not just the physical pain, but the spiritual torment of having the wrath of God upon him for the sins of the world. But that death does not just get applied to everyone. It is only applied to those who come to God through faith in Jesus. And if you do, his death will be applied to your sins. You can be forgiven full and free. You can know that your sins will never keep you from God, will never keep you from eternity, because Jesus has taken care of them. Do you want that this morning? Right now we're going to spend just a few moments in silent prayer. Each week we do this after the sermon as a way for every single one of us to respond to the Lord. Right? God's spoken to us, now we need to speak to Him. We need to respond to Him and what He's laid on our minds and our hearts. So we spend this time in silent prayer for every single one of us to respond to the message because we all need to. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, we'll come back, we'll have an invitation time where if anyone needs to respond publicly, like, like in the way that we just talked about, we'll have an opportunity to do that. So let's pray together for a few moments.